Welcome back to the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I talk to the legend that is Marianne Sullivan. Marianne is co-host with previous guest Jasmine Singer of the R Henhouse podcast and host of the Animal Law podcast too. She's a lawyer, lecturer, teacher and animal rights activist. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the over 70 others now. Don't forget to work through that back catalogue if you're a new subscriber. Every person who reviews, rates, or shares our podcast with a friend or 10 helps us nudge a few more people towards more compassionate and rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates, or search for sentientism on your favorite social media platform. We're on Twitter, Reddit, Quora, Discord, Telegram, Instagram, Facebook, and most other places. You'd be made welcome in any of our global community groups that are open to anyone interested in these ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks as ever for listening. Good morning, Marianne. How are you? I'm great. Lovely to see you, Jamie. You too. And it's wonderful to have the chance to turn the tables after I had the honour of appearing on Our Hen House, a proper big podcast that people actually listen to. So it's great to have you as a guest on my mini one. I warned you right before we started that you have to be so stop being so self-deprecating about your podcast. <laughs> it's great. It's growing and it will soon be everyone in the world will be listening to it. Thank I have you. No doubt. My British self-deprecation is just an act. I'm really just fishing. For, <laughs> I'm just fishing. I'm just fishing for compliments. So thank you. You play. I have played, to tell you that's occurred to me in the past. You played perfectly into really my plan. It, <laughs> does he really think that or is it just that he's British? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's brilliant to have you join this series of sentientist conversations. And as you know already, it's really centered on, I think of as the two deepest, but also simplest philosophical questions, what's real and what matters morally. And I clearly have an overwhelming bias in that uh, I think the right answer is summed up in this really simple worldview called sentientism, which says, when we're thinking about what's real, we should take a naturalistic approach that uses evidence and reason. And when we're thinking about what matters morally, we should grant compassion for all beings that are sentient that can experience suffering and flourishing. But again, I'm talking to people in these conversations who agree and disagree. So it will be fascinating to hear your personal story. But before we get on to that, how would you best introduce your life and your work for the rare people that don't know what you do already? Oh, yeah, there's so few left in the world. Absolutely, your global fame. Let's see. I, I'll just talk about my animal life. I didn't really wake up to animal issues until I was in my 40s. I always liked animals, but nothing really special. And it was I was living with a dog alone for the first time on a whim. I had adopted a dog and literally on a whim. I was on my way to the law library and I said to myself, if the, adopt, if the ASPCA adoption truck is there, I am adopting a dog today. And it was there. It wasn't there that often. And you all already now know part of my worldview is that I'm, there's a lot of superstition in there. I'm not claiming to believe in it. Obviously, it was my life in many ways. So I, I adopted a dog. He almost died because he was so ill. He was adorable. I loved him totally. But I also started to notice that there's so much going on here. And it just, when you're living alone, I think that you really do key into things sometimes. You have a lot of time to think. And I just started thinking about animals more generally. First about dogs, mm. got very involved in training him and just spending time with him and getting to know him. 
And then then about animals more broadly, a bartender I knew at a bar I used to hang out at the Air Inn. If you're ever in New York, please go because it's a great bar. Happened to mention to me that he had stopped eating meat because of the way the animals were treated. And it was just like, boom, this is one of those moments in life. And I thought, oh yeah, that's probably a problem. I, I think probably, or maybe I just attribute my own thoughts to everybody, but I just think most people know there's a problem there. They just yeah. avoid thinking about it. And I was just open at that moment. When I started looking into it, I was a lawyer. I worked for myself and then I worked at the court in Manhattan for many years. And so that was naturally the direction in which I gravitated as I gradually became more aware that this was a nightmare beyond incomprehensible dimensions and what was one to do about it. And so I joined an, the Animal Law Committee of the New York City Bar Association. I was very lucky because it was the first bar association in the country to have an animal law committee. And several people had founded it before I joined it. So I was able to join that, find some like minds. But they weren't all like minds because I quickly became very involved in farm animal issues because that was where the nightmare was. And a lot of people were just interested in dogs and cats. But farm animals I was catching on, even in the animal rights movement. This is back in the mid-90s. So. It was so easy to forget. It was so hard to find things out then. Like you couldn't just go on and find out what was happening. I, I ended up subscribing and, and I would get mailings from different animal rights organizations. They would say different things. They all hated each other. Like it was craziness. And, but I did subscribe to The Animal's Agenda, which was a magazine at the time published by Kim Stallwood, you're probably familiar with. Yeah, um, previous great guest British actually. British yeah. activist. Yeah, I, I'm not yeah. surprised. And that was amazing. And I ended up being on his board. It was a not-for-profit. And that way I was able to get more information. And that's what you had to do. You had to read a magazine. It's a very depressing magazine. <laughs> you didn't look forward to sitting down with it. But I was desperate for information. And so I, I just, I, I guess it's too late to make a, a long story short. So I'll make it a little shorter. I just became involved in legal things. They, it was never, I've never practiced animal law just tried to find ways to make myself useful. We would comment on legislation. We would write, we wrote a report for the city that actually ended up being very um, influential in New York, setting up the way it handles sheltering. And uh, a lot of the work then was around, was still around dogs and cats, but I became a little bit more aware. One thing led to another. I wrote a few articles with David Wolfson and started teaching and I've taught at a number of different law schools because I teach as an adjunct and I never joined the faculty and just kept doing that. And then came, I met Jasmine, we founded our hen house, we started the podcast. That was basically the beginnings. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. And we'll come back to a lot of those themes because I guess that sort of what matters morally question has been central to so much of your life. And I guess is you know, driven a lot of your work and your focus. But I, it'd be good to start with the first of those two deep questions, the one about what's real. So for many of my guests, that's a story about whether they grew up in quite a naturalistic, agnostic, atheistic, you know, science-minded context, or one that was more supernatural or religious or mystical in some way, and how their philosophy shifted on that, I guess, epistemological side of philosophy over time, if it has. So yeah, you can wind the clock back as far as you're comfortable but. It would be interesting to know your story on. It wouldn't be surprising to know, since my name is Marianne Bernadette Sullivan, that I grew up Catholic. And we, we weren't a terribly religious family, but it, uh, definitely faith was an important part of my life growing up. It was a very important part of my mother's life. Mm. 
I'm not sure about my father. He never spoke a lot. I, I'm, I, I take after my father. I keep it to myself a lot. But yeah. I grew I didn't ever go to Catholic school. But I, I went to, they called it confraternity, like Catholic lessons, like twice a week for all of my childhood. I had faith. It was never a burden to me. I didn't, mm. it, it wasn't, uh, I guess Catholicism is pretty rigid, but it wasn't particularly rigid for me. I liked all the, the Virgin Mary and the saints. And, and I don't, I think growing, having grown up religious and not really anymore, but you can never get those voices out of your head. They're, you always think there's somebody out there. I don't know, maybe other people get over that. But I, for me, it's we all have so many different voices in our heads telling us to do this and then arguing with ourselves and having a lot of different opinions in there. But yeah. one of mine is always like the Virgin Mary, I think, because somehow once they get in there, they can't get out. And I don't think it was ever a bad influence, but it did start to, when I was a teenager, it just started to seem unlikely. It, I didn't hate it, but it, it didn't seem, I didn't see any reason why it would be true. Yeah. It seemed like there were a lot of other options about what could be true. And I, and the people who, who were teaching me, and I didn't have any horrible Catholic experiences. I know a lot of people do, but I didn't at all. Most of the people were very nice, but they didn't seem exceptionally bright or aware or, so it was a long process, but I did mm. just let go of thinking, this doesn't seem like the answer to all the questions yeah. um, that there are in the universe. And since then, I just never found all the answers. I just at some point decided we're not here to understand what is happening. Either this is all there is, or maybe there's something else. I don't know, but it's not a puzzle I'll figure out in my life. So I thought that the, and I think that's a good way for me to talk about it to people who are religious, because mm. I just think that even if you're, even if you believe you shouldn't make things up and you have not been given very much information about what it is that drives the universe. So maybe yeah. that's, even if there's somebody up there thinking you're supposed to do this, if they wanted you to know more, they would give you better in facts. That's, and, and I think what you said there is just mm -hmm. saying, I don't know, is probably one of the wisest things anyone can say. And we should get more comfortable with not knowing. I'm stuff. glad I've started out the conversation with, saying one of the wisest things <laughs> that you've ever heard, even though it was like, I know nothing. <laughs> I think that's Maybe that wise. is a pretty wise thing, yeah. yeah. Yeah, And one of the themes through many of these conversations have been really about, a, you know, a journey away from a religious worldview to something that is either more naturalistic or, you know, at least open-minded about what's going on and less certain. Um, and it, it does seem like there's a correlation because I think for people like you and me who had quite a, a positive religious culture and background, it was more about being kind to one another and compassion and just being a you know sort of intuitively good person. It wasn't structured and rigid and the discrimination and harshness and constraints that can sometimes come through a religious worldview didn't really we, you didn't feel that. I didn't really feel that. So my journey was similar to yours and that it was more originally about the logic and the evidence and just saying, look, this doesn't seem to altogether, doesn't seem to make sense. There's some incoherences. There's some inconsistencies. Yeah. I've just learned about all these 2000 other religions and they can't all be right and learning about scientific worldview. So it was more about the facts and the evidence. Whereas those of my guests who've frankly had a, in some cases, a, a truly horrific or, or at least a much yeah. tougher religious context. It was more, the trigger was more around some of the ethics and the morality that were part of that structure. So whether it was homophobia or the caste system or anti-Semitism or whatever it was, but it was something they saw in the ethics and the behavior and the practices that 
made them think, hold on, this is this isn't the right way to go. But it's interesting how there's a bit of a mix uh, of those two rationales for moving away from a religious worldview that my guests have been sharing. Was there anything on that sort of ethics and morality side, or was it because your experiences were generally positive? There wasn't really anything on that side of the equation that. Oh gosh, pushed um, your drift. I'm sure that I'm sure there were, but. When I was younger, I probably wasn't very aware. I had I led mm. a fairly sheltered life. I wasn't that aware of, of yeah. the horrors in the world. And I'm sure there were things that I thought were wrong. I'm sure yeah. there were. Yeah. But I just but the, don't recall them. Yeah. For some of those things, often they're, as with many of the problems in the world, when you're taught something is normal, you don't tend to recognize that there's a problem there until much later as well. Exactly. So, you know, so I never exactly. asked the question, why are all the priests men? Or why are all the bishops right. men, for example? Or right. there were certain things that you just, this is completely normal. It's only when you look back on it where you start to think, yeah. hold on, that, that doesn't hold together. And when I did reach an age where I did start to question that, it was at the exact same time as I was questioning the whole Megillah. Yeah. It was both logically and, and, and at that point ethically mixed up as to why, am I, why would I hold on to this worldview? Yeah. Um, and, and it sounds like the, your, your drift away from that was more of a sort of gentle drift it wasn't intellectually or emotionally traumatic for you it wasn't difficult with your family or your society was is that fair to say I just, as i said i was like my father i just didn't talk about it to my mother who's <laughs> i'm sure she figured it out at some point and her heart yeah. broke but no i didn't it, and it was an interesting time at the time i grew up in i went to college in 1968 those were very tumultuous times both yeah yeah uh, socially and politically, and there was huge change growing on. I went to a Catholic a college, but and I, I often tell this story. When I arrived, we we had to dress for dinner, like in dresses and heels, and and go to church every week. And by the time I left, there were like men with beards living in the dorms with most <laughs> students. Like like yeah. there it was a time of dramatic, like yeah. almost incomprehensible. You could see the change. shifts happening, yeah. Yeah. It, Must like, have been amazing. Especially the, the signs were there earlier in the 60s. I was a child and I was a little sheltered from it. And and then boom, the entire world changed. So this was the exact same time I was going through questioning religion. And but everybody was questioning everything. That was yeah. just the, the the nature of the world. So that certainly blended into that story. Yeah, thank you. And I wouldn't say that I currently, I lean towards atheism. Mm. I just don't like to make, like, I, I don't like to be certain about these things because yeah. I do think there are many things that we don't understand uh, about the world. And I do think, this I feel very strongly about. The only thing I feel very strongly about being true is that we're connected to each other. Yeah in ways that we just don't understand. There are connections there that, that, that are beyond us. And so I think that's interesting. I feel pretty certain of that. Yeah. But it could be just another naturalist part of the world, or it could be something else. And I, like I said, I decided at some point, I don't think it's my job to figure that out. Yeah, I, There's a, plenty of other work to do. And I quite, I'm reasonably comfortable with the term atheist, but I like the definition that just says it's, it's just the absence of a belief in a deity. It doesn't mean you're 100% sure there isn't one, because I think a good hallmark of a naturalistic way of thinking is that you're never 100% sure about anything, really. As soon as you're 100% sure of something, you're basically saying, I'm no longer open to evidence or reasoning, I'm done. And that's just another form of dogma. So again, I think it's good to be uh, open-minded and uncertain, even about potentially quite outlandish ideas. It should always yeah. you know, have a small so we're kind level of... on the yeah, I think so. I think on the so. same page there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, one of the other things that's been interesting for me is that there is this sense 
for some people, that many people with a religious or supernatural worldview have this sort of rich sense of awe and wonder and the connectedness of all things that for them is more of a spiritual thing. And in a way, I find exactly that in a completely hardcore scientific naturalistic worldview. We are all connected. We are all stardust. We all return to the earth. I have this intellectual sense of awe and wonder that reality as we experience it is just mind-blowing. And it's it feels like such a that unusual privilege to even exist and to be part of it and to have these sort of limited human capabilities to even glimpse what we're part of. So I think emotionally, I have feelings that are, I think are very similar to those that many religious or supernatural people. people yeah, have. I would say I have the same thing, especially in the sense that we're all connected. And by all, I actually mean all sentient creatures. Yeah. But even with creatures or non-creatures who I believe are non-sentient, I feel there's, with trees or whatever, there's part of being on the earth is being part of that. But especially with sentience, it just seems to be the thing that links together. And I, I think of it as like a candle, like yeah. you can, or a flame, like you can bring, flames can separate and be very many separate flames, but they also can be just one flame together. And, and sentience is like that in some way that it's very individual. And we all live our lives as individuals, including animals. They all live their lives as individuals. They're not species, but, and they all have to go through that as individuals, but in some way there's a unity. All right. I, I need to stop talking about this because now I'm like getting blue, but. Uh. <laughs> no, but I, I, I like, but, but in a way, I think you, you, you can look at sentience and consciousness in a woo sort of way, in a mystical way. And it's understandable why people do that because it's so centrally important to us in a way. That's the only thing we know directly. Everything I'm experiencing is my experience. So it's obviously central to us and it's quite hard to understand. So some people do take, you know, quite a mystical approach to it. Again, I think of it in a very naturalistic way. In a way, I think it's just a, a biologically evolved pattern of information processing that developed because it was useful for even in the pre-Cambrian, very simple animals to have a model of themselves, have a model of others in the environment, have a model of the environment, and to feel valenced experience that said, you know, go towards good things and stay away from bad things. So I think that was almost the genesis, most likely, of what you and I are experiencing now. And obviously what we're experiencing is richer and more varied and bizarre in some ways. And odd but, and weird. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. But, but no, that, I, I tend to be the same, but I keep an open mind. And I like agree. keeping an open mind because of that, what you were talking about before, the awe. And I, I don't think those things have to be totally separate. Yeah. Even if there's nothing more to it than we understand, it's still pretty awesome. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, and I find that just the experience of our reality as it is quite amazing enough without having to make anything up yeah but i think you're right that sort of open-mindedness is has to be central because there's a risk that even people with a naturalistic or quite a scientific and, and an atheistic worldview can end up sounding quite dogmatic we have the evidence we have the facts we have the answer i will brook Absolutely. no opposition dogma isn't just for the supernatural so um, yeah we need to guard against it if we want to be proper naturalists we need to be open-minded and but you've hinted already at the second deep question which is what matters morally and you've you know, talked about how that's been an influence on the thing, your work, and you talked about that sense of connectedness and sentience as well. But in the absence of a, you know, a supernatural worldview in a classical sense of, right, here's a list of commandments, or here's the Quran, or here's a deity looking over your shoulder to judge you, some people will say, okay, without that, how can you have any morality at all? What is morality? So how would you respond to that sort of challenge? What is morally good or bad, or what guides what's morally good or bad? 
for you? Yeah, this seems like such an easy question to me, though. I'm sure it's just because I'm missing every single nuance to it. But I suspect it's not. I suspect it's not. I think it's really easy. I'm so perplexed when people say that. Do they seriously think that without this list of rules, which I guess they grew up in, and the rules are not bad. I'm not criticizing them. Some of them are. Do they seriously think that, yeah, some of them are. (laughs) Many of them are, actually. A lot of them are fine. Yeah, the golden um, rule is a pretty good start. Why would you not know the difference between it's very Peter Singerish, but it's it's all about suffering. Like not all about suffering. It's also about pleasure. But the bottom line is that if you can have a difference between a good day and a bad day, why do you have to explain what that is? <laughs> it just seems so obvious to me. If you can suffer and they can animals can suffer and we don't know exactly where that line is drawn, but that's a question. Yeah. That's worth talking about but whether it matters whether they suffer it just seems so completely obvious to me and it seems to me that it's completely obvious to most people and they just go through a lot of convolutions to make it not obvious that somehow there's some way around this but it's just it's so easy i think one of the reasons that that we do find so many ways around it is that there is so much suffering in the world and obviously we impose enormous quantities of suffering but even without us yeah. It's a pretty brutal world out there. It's one of the reasons I prefer not to to believe in traditional religions, because what kind of God is this anyway? Yeah. Like, who would think of this, that you put, create this planet, create these creatures who can feel things and can have, can suffer and can be miserable and can feel terrible pain and then set it up so they all eat each other? Who did that? I, I would not want to believe in, in that God. So, yeah, I, I don't know what more to say about it. It just seems so simple. If you can suffer, you matter. Well, I'm, I'm with you. So there are, of course, and again, this links back to the first topic of conversation, because people with a religious worldview will often define morality as really in a sense of compliance or obedience, which I think sort of sucks some of the value out of it. In it's following this list of rules or it's mirroring the actions of the intentions of a god or another prophet-like figure that you're supposed to replicate. So that, in a way, that becomes the definition of good, somewhat independent of suffering and flourishing, which I find odd. But it, the classic example is the story of Abraham, which is central to at least three of the biggest religions, where Abraham, I'm sure, felt compassion and love for his son. But because God told him to kill him, he was on the brink of doing that. And that would have been, in that worldview, a good thing to do, because ultimately what counts isn't suffering and flourishing, it's obedience to God and worshipping God. So um, sorry, I'm going off on a bit of a rant there. But, but once you've put that supernatural view of morality to one side and you've said okay let's think about morality in a naturalistic way it seems almost built into the definition of morality just the common sense definition of morality that it is about a concern for others and if you're going to have a concern for others what you mean is you have a concern for their experience and their suffering and their flourishing so yeah it almost becomes tautological for me and that's partly why i think that despite the many millions of hours of philosophy and the many trillions of words written about it, the essence of it for me, as with you, I'd agree, is pretty simple. It comes back down to pleasure and flourishing and suffering, and that's pretty much it. But that links us on to the next challenging question, because I think, as you said, it's pretty intuitively strong. I think most people on the planet would agree with us, but people have radically different views about whose suffering we should care about and how far that scope of moral consideration should go. So you, you might argue that pre-humans, you know, pre-human animals and the animals today 
feel some form of compassion and they care about their kin or their group members and there's there's some dynamics going on there about reciprocity and kin and uh, and those types of behaviors and that was probably the genesis of early human morality as well our tribe our kin our family caring about each other as a way because it was evolutionary adaptable as social creatures to be able to procreate and survive that's a quite a narrow moral scope if you like and obviously the human species as a whole has we've shifted our morality so while many people still do have in groups and out groups that they prioritize and certain out groups of humans they completely exclude and that leads to awful problems even today at least conceptually many humans have said okay through the you know universal declaration of human rights for example at least conceptually will grant moral consideration to all humans regardless of their characteristics and again we know how much that remains <laughs> aspirational right we're nowhere near that but at least the aspiration was set but it'd be interesting to know your story about how you went through that moral consideration and one of the critical points given our discussion already is when we go beyond the human we start to recognize that non-human suffering matters too and you hinted at that already in how you went through that journey but yeah, I'm not sure there's all that much to add for it, add to it. I'm reading Peter Sanger was obviously a big he what he did was for people who were open to this thought, he he made it he just wrote it down and made mm. it obvious. And I think people reading him who have been influenced by him because he was the first to to really write this down in the way and, and he always did it. He, everything he writes is just so easy to understand. Yeah. Not for a philosopher, yeah. And so it wasn't that hard for me to get there. I just don't understand why. The thing that drives me crazy is why did I get there? And everybody doesn't get there. I, this is, it doesn't seem like I went on a journey. It just yeah. seems like I woke up, not to, not to be self-deprecating myself, but I'm not that great a person. I know loads of people who've done much finer things in their lives than I have, who have no trouble not thinking about animals or and I know loads of people who care deeply about animals who have no trouble not thinking about how should I act in light of this information. I don't understand. I don't think it's a philosophical problem. I think it's at best a psychological problem and yeah. at worst just flaw in human nature, which <laughs> now I'm saying like I've escaped this terrible flaw. It's hard to talk about this without um, sounding self-righteous. But as I've always said, like, how can you not sound self-righteous when you're right? Like, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and you're pretty sure you're right. And most people are pretty sure they're right, I, yeah, I think. Because yeah. if you weren't sure you were right, why wouldn't you change your mind? I don't get it. I don't understand why this is this big moral journey. Yeah. Like, like you just wake up to this and you think, this is terrible. The world is terrible. We're doing all these terrible things. Let's stop. And I think most of us as animal activists start out thinking, at least they used to. I guess this doesn't happen as much anymore. All I have to do is tell everybody. I found out about factory because people didn't know about factory farming then. And I found out and I was horrified. And, and I think everybody who got into activism at that point was pretty much thought it was a matter of information. And we still think that. The, and the information is important because it does change some people. Mm. But I just don't understand why it doesn't change everybody. Um, and and you mentioned people that, who are really good people and who do wonderful things in the world. Yeah, it's deeply strange. And you mentioned that you had that one conversation where someone said, I don't eat animals because obviously it leads to their suffering and death. And that's a bad thing. And it was like a light bulb moment for you. How quickly did you manage to put that into practice? Because for some people, it's quite a long, slow halting journey. It was for me. It took me embarrassingly long to work that through and actually make some pretty obvious changes. 
But did you wake up the next morning vegan or was it, how challenging was that transition? I'm sure it took a long time. This was the mid nineties again. First I needed to get more information and that was challenging enough at the time. And as I got more information, I did, I think I became vegetarian and then very quickly vegan pretty Mm. quickly. And how did, but, and what was that like socially at the time? Was that, was it difficult it was, socially? How weird it was, was more it? more difficult than it is now in yeah. every way. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't that hard. Yeah. I was, I wasn't, as I mentioned, I was living alone. So that removes like 90% of the, because a lot of the issues are within families. Yeah. Yeah. Teenagers have such a hard time because their parents don't get it. People who are partnered have a hard time because they have different points of view and it can be extremely divisive. Yeah. So there's a real, I'm sure there's a real strong incentive to not take it that seriously. Cause I just don't know how people manage that when you wake up to this and your yeah. partner doesn't. And so, yeah, it, the food was bad and I'm not a good cook. And there were all, I would, I lived in New York in the city and there were already vegetarian and vegan restaurants. Like it wasn't brutally hard. And most of the people, most of my friends just took it in stride and you know, they were used to me being set in my ways and <laughs> wanting my own ways. They were willing to put up with that. They were willing to put up with something else. And my family's very kind and thinks I'm a little crazy, but, but certainly to this day, they always have something for me to eat, but it's never occurred to them that they should go there. Yeah. My sister and nieces and those, that sort of family, I don't have children myself. So yeah. I, I don't remember what your question was. No, that was, yeah. that, that was great. It was, yeah, and because it's interesting in these conversations, because sometimes it feels like there's a bit of a parallel between people's journey away from a religious worldview to something more naturalistic and one from consuming animal products towards something that's much more like veganism. Because on both fronts, and you've queued this central challenge up as we come on to talk about the future, because on both of those topics, it seems like the answer philosophically and analytically is pretty obvious and fairly straightforward. It's almost like the arguments have been won already, but yet nearly everybody on the planet still disagrees with this, either on one or both of those topics. And, and in a way, that's come to frame this section of the conversation I've had in these, in these chats when we're thinking about the future, because on the one hand, it feels like there's this latent agreement that most people on the planet, at least in their day-to-day lives, do use evidence and reason in working out what to believe and how to you know, go about their normal daily lives. But then many people will have a supernatural or religious element that can sometimes you know, warp their ethics in damaging ways. Most people, most of the time, do use evidence and reason. What else would you do? Well, and then use- can I just interrupt for a second? I mean, yeah, we yeah. use evidence and reason, but not necessarily to good ends. And yeah, and, and quite it's often... It's not just the- evidence that gets you there. It depends on what your goal is. And a lot of people's goals seem to be not so good. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and, and I think that's... Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I interrupted you. I just no, but that's, in, that's an important point because I don't want to suggest that you know, committing to using evidence and reason magically solves all the problems yeah. either because yeah. you know if you pick the wrong evidence or you warp the evidence or your reasoning is driven by a you know cognitive bias or because there's an end goal you're trying to justify so we need to be skeptical about our own reasoning and all of the evidence we're using as well if we're you know doing it right so i totally agree you can be thrown off course even if theoretically you you claim a commitment to evidence and reason but then you have a similar situation on the other side where you know most people on the planet if you said would you want to needlessly cause suffering to a sentient animal they go of course not and right, yeah exactly and yeah exactly. right? so, so we're in this weird situation where most people on the planet are pretty close to agreeing with us and agreeing with our ethics 
but actually their expressed behavior and their actions and their priorities are, are, are radically different. And that brings us back to, I mean, that's one of the reasons I love our hen house and the work you do with Jasmine, because it's on the one hand, helping us cope with the despair that we feel about looking at the world and this frustration of these answers seem so obvious to us, but nearly everyone disagrees. And how can we handle that? But also talking to so many inspiring people that gives us hope, right? And as you say, things are so different in the places that you and I live at the moment. Anyway, things have, you know, have never been easier to make these shifts and you can see changes happening. I should ask a question really, but I guess that's the central challenge, right? We it seems like the answers are fairly obvious, but the weirdness of social human psychology and social norms and the inertia behind them seems to be more of the problem than an actual technical issue. Yeah, no, it was just an observation. So how, how does that leave you thinking about the future? Yeah, it, it leaves how- me confused. I'm going through a tough time. It's been a very difficult, it's always been tough. Becoming, becoming aware of this and then becoming where that people don't care in the way that you do is very painful. But right now, I just seem to ask every single guest I have on the podcast, one of my questions is always like, how do you account for the fact that people do love animals and, and would never do this to an animal and yet continue to eat meat? And I get loads of good answers, but none of them are good enough. Yeah. They're, none of it makes sense to me. And it's not just what's going on with animals, it's what's going on with the world. I mean, with climate, with pandemic, with the insane levels of right-wing politics, which, and all of those things have to be connected, but one does start to despair for the, for, for the future. Yeah. And I don't want to go there with your audience because who needs more despair in their lives? <laughs> I'm trying to be honest here. Yeah. It, it, I ask every, every guest, and I'm not sure any of us have the answer, what's going on there? I would say, having been in this for a while, that things have shifted. Yeah. Their youth, like philosophy questions seems to have moved a little bit into the background for a lot of people. They don't need a lot of rational explanations for why we should do this, for yeah. why we should not harm animals. It's almost as um, if the argument has been won in a sense already. Yeah. Exactly. But the behavior has not followed it. Yeah. I guess there's a lot of argumentation right now, in at least in the environmental community, about individual action. Do we each individually have to go vegan? And my goal isn't that everyone should go, well, it is that everyone should go vegan, but my bottom line goal is that animals should stop suffering. So when people say that, I just think it's a way of avoiding their personal responsibility. There's virtually no other moral issue that you would say, we have to wait for laws and policy. Like if you want to abuse children, you don't keep doing it until they pass a law against it, even though you've come to the realization it's wrong, like nothing else else fits into that category. Yeah. You wouldn't donate to a political party you opposed and say, it's the system. My my individual decision makes no difference. You wouldn't do that. Yeah. Why pay into a system that you don't need to pay into if you disagree with what that system is doing? So um, it seems so obvious that individual veganism is, is part and part of the the process. Like Maybe you don't have to be actually vegan in order to make, you do in order to live according to your own principles, but in order to make an impact on the world. But of course, there's so many ways beyond what you individually eat that you influence the world when you go vegan. Like, like the one thing that drives me crazy is when people say, I'm vegan at home, but you don't want to go out. I'll have dairy. Who cares what you do? I care what you do at home, but not that much. But what you do when you're out, that's what changes the world. That's what people see. That's yeah, of course. So obviously that's important. It just seems like people keep wanting to come up with excuses to do this horrifying, horrifying thing that is good yeah. for nobody. And it does make me a little despairing. I'm not, and, the, and the closest I've got to an answer, and this 
partly through these conversations is that I think in a way we maybe expect too much of humans ourselves included because in a way we are just highly evolved apes and the morality we start from it came from the savannah and came from in a very different environment so that's one way of mitigating our expectations of ourselves and understanding descriptively why we might have certain moral ways about us that could justify causing needless harm the second thing and i think this is probably the deepest is it is really those social norms and that even for something that clearly and very directly is obviously horrific if your parents and your wider family and your school teachers and your society and everybody around you is telling you that this thing is completely normal to do, then it's highly likely, unless you're a somewhat unusual person, that you will disagree. And that can have really deep, well, that, powerful and- impact, as you said, even on otherwise brilliant intellectual thinkers, public intellectuals, philosophers, deeply moral people who still have the, this set of blinkers because they were taught almost from birth, this is a normal thing. And it's so hard to chip away from that. Um, yeah. But then why did you? Why did I? Are I think we, we that were, much better than the rest of the world, Jamie? Or I, what's going on? Of course, Melanie Joy's work has been, yeah. like I think, just brilliant in this, like really crystallized all of that as to yeah. why people don't go there. But what is the, we, we have to define what is the difference that made us go there? Because I don't think that we're that much better than everybody else. No. So it is possible. <laughs> I think we're just weird. We I might think just we're... really come best. But, I think I don't think probably I don't, not. Yeah, we're I weird. I don't yeah. think we're better. We're just weird. So yeah. how, how do we make everybody else? Of course, they won't be weird once once norms change. Unfortunately, they change too slowly. And I say it as a person who, for years, there was no hope at all. Yeah. And then they invented all these new products, and all of a sudden, like there was just no hope at all. It was the most quixotic quest invented. And now it's not really quixotic. It's very hard slog, but it's possible. But still, like, why don't they all just do it, Jamie? I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's bizarre. As you said, once you've seen it, it's very hard not to be righteous and preachy and because we're um, right. Because we're right. And, and, it's, and it, this isn't a trivial issue. This is a really important thing. And it's I, huge. And I can imagine it. people who have a social justice cause around humans feel the same way. This is so obvious. Why can't you see this? And we just feel the same way. It's frustrating. But when I, when I look around and see what's happening with climate and, and just, just the horrific politics that are taking hold, and I think those two things are very deeply connected. Yeah. Like I just see this, the same kind of thing happening. Like people just call it denial or it's not self-interest really. So it's a form of denial, just the people's ability to be in denial about what's really going around. It's probably what has allowed us to take over the world. And I just fear that it's going to be our doom. Yeah, maybe. And I think there are cognitive themes that link some of those agendas, because I think there's an attraction to dogma, the confidence and the definite, it's a definite thing. Even though if you're in your heart of hearts, it's not true, it still feels positive. There's this identitarian and tribal belonging thing, which sometimes links to the dogma, right? If you, ha- you have to express the dogma totally. to be part of the tribe, and that's more important than the truth, even if believing the dogma can be harmful. So I think there are echoes in those themes. But again, it's really weird because you flip from that frustration on all of those topics to also thinking about the more hopeful side that you look back over history and we have managed to make some progress on some things. And sometimes that can happen quite quickly. But I guess that that probably draws through to the next part of the question, which is given your own work and the brilliant range of people you've talked to in really in what's your life's work 
What do you think are the levers that we can most productively pull? Because there's, you've already touched on, there's the personal choices we make. And, the, and obviously that has an impact in terms of consumption choices that runs through the economy. But there's also the wider ripples in terms of social acceptability and norms. There is the, what levers can we pull to drive the systemic change? Given your own work, there's the role of the, the law and institutions sometimes people think following public opinion, but often they can actually lead. And then there's the practical, technical stuff as well, where can we almost sidestep the moral hard work and say, look, we're going to make the less harmful alternative so cheap and easy and fast for you that people will do the right thing anyway without a moral transition and then maybe upgrade their morality afterwards. What, what's your sense about what sort of levers can we most productively pull to try and make things better? I guess primarily on well, the non-human animal front, but also on, on the human ethics challenges. This doesn't really apply to the human ethics challenges, but on the, I think the food obviously is crucial. I didn't always think that because mm. there wasn't any hope on that front, but I think I just didn't allow myself to realize how dire it was. People are just not going to change their food, but the, the food is is changing for so many different reasons. But I think that even if we achieve beyond our wildest dreams, shifting the type of food that people eat and for reasons other than the animals. And that would save billions of lives. And that would be great. But I don't think that's enough. There are many other ways in which we cause animals to suffer. And it would never motivate people to completely eliminate agriculture. It just It's just not enough. And we have mm. to get the sentiment with it. But I do think that what I always say is once you get people the meat out of people's ears, they can start to hear these arguments. But until you do, they just can't hear it. Yeah, I think Carol Adams was the person who first gave the advice, which I think is so wise. Don't have this argument at the dinner table while they're eating meat. Don't do that to yourself. It's yeah. pointless. Yeah. So I think that's the first step. I, I actually, maybe you wouldn't like this, but I actually think that another lever is, and this is really fortunate, is religion. Yeah, because yeah. Somehow, none, I don't know of any religion that really is wedded to abusing animals. There yeah. have in the past been a few, but even that, like not in the, in fact, most of them have, have moral precepts against it, which are just ignored yeah. um, by virtually everybody. Christianity, not as much, but still, I think there are certainly many, a lot of Christian thinkers who think that it's in there and it's important. And I do think that's a lever that you and I have no ability to pull, but how can these religious people ignore this issue? It's this yeah. fundamental moral issue. And I, many of them are not, and, but, but many of them still are. I think that's a big lever to pull, which will be up to others to pull better than I can. I agree. I think that's one of the things we have to do is find people where they are with the ethical systems they have and, and see what we can do to... And most of those ethical systems are derived from religion. Yeah, yeah. For the vast and, majority of people. And there's some really good work going on, both within groups within Buddhism, for example, who are saying, look, this is really obvious, right? Have, haven't you heard of Ahimsa? Trying to make really a sentiocentric concern more obviously a central part of Buddhism, which it should be. But again, it's drifted away culturally. There is this great work going on with the Animal Interfaith Alliance, for example, when there are people from you know, Islamic faith and Christianity and various others who are looking at, again, their religious ethics and their guidance and their rules and their books and just interpreting them in a different way and saying, look, all of us share this universal compassion, or at least an aspiration to universal compassion. It should be extended beyond just our species. So in the Christian context, it's moving away from this idea of dominion, maybe to more one of stewardship and, and care. And, and you're right, there are some narrow religious practices that are explicit explicitly drive harm to animals, but they're pretty rare. And most of all, I think there is, there's a real rich opportunity to use that 
compassionate ethos and just extend that further. Absolutely. I, yeah. I think it's, I once had somebody, I can't remember his name, on the podcast talking about Islam and was telling the story, which I had never heard before about the Prophet Muhammad. They were at war and they mm. were fighting and they were on their way to a battle, this huge army. And he came across a dog giving birth to puppies and stationed a number of soldiers to stay there around this dog so that she wouldn't be harmed by the army moving through. At a point where he needed every soldier he could get. Like these ideas mm. and these stories are in religion and there are people out there who are pushing them. But I don't think it's just, it's not just changing the food. It's not just changing religion. It's it, whatever, this is the principle on from which our hen house was always based. Whatever lever yeah. you can pull or is available to you or you're good at, just work at pulling that lever and because we need them all it's we're changing the way we're trying to change the way the entire world works and i think that it's, it's happening at the same time as this crisis with the climate which could end everything and it has people very frightened which is not a good thing <laughs> but it does have the advantage of also being completely keyed into this issue yeah uh so i do think the opportunity is there i just think that there's no way to pin down we have to do everything yeah Everything. It has to be philosophy. Some pe people think differently. People act differently. People find uh, morality differently. So, yeah, it's whatever kind of it a... takes. But I, I, and I like the point you made earlier on, right? Because there is a temptation that we get so frustrated with the sort of philosophical moral argument. Look, it just isn't convincing enough people. So let's switch to something that's purely about alternative products and food and just making it really easy for people. And I think that's really powerful, but we can't forget the moral argument as well, because yeah, there is a real exactly. risk we'll end up in some other really awful dead ends where there's still enormous suffering. And we've just convinced ourselves, we've yeah. greenwashed or ethics washed what we're now doing, that we think it's fine. So we, I think well, we, we will always need that strong moral push and drive, because ultimately, as you said, what we care about is, is the suffering. And if we're not working absolutely, on that. Absolutely. Then... And one of those has to be the suffering of chickens because that the climate argument isn't nearly as strong and people don't think of them as mm. uh, as mattering. And I said to somebody the other day, I can't remember what it was, but God is a chicken because <laughs> they really deserve a little representation here. If there is a God, I hope they are a chicken. And the arguments aren't that strong. They're starting to, you know, push chicken consumption in many countries instead of beef and, and grazing animals. And so, yeah, the suffering argument and the sentience argument, like who are the, it's not just are they sentient or aren't they? I think that telling the stories, people have to hear who these animals are, what, what they can do so that they are, they are sympathetic to, to more of them. And we're the storytelling ape. That's, that is the real way that people hear you is if you tell a story, whether your own story or it's hard to tell the animal stories. If we don't do a very good job at it. Uh, yeah. yeah. I don't think we're capable of doing a very good job at it. And we sometimes jump to, to just assume, best. we sometimes jump to assuming they're voiceless, which is, I think kindly meant because it's saying, look, we have to right. help represent have to them because they, them. we have to stick yeah. up for them. But it doesn't mean they're actually voiceless. They have, they communicate and they have yeah. needs and they have interests. But and it, they... It's hard. I think we tend, we've always tended to either say they're voiceless or to completely anthropomorphize them yeah. and say they're just like us. And it's neither. And it's another place in which people are asked to accept something they don't really understand. I don't know what my dog is thinking. Yeah. I, I don't, the birds outside, I don't know. I know that there's something going on there, but I am never 
going to know what that is. And I think that's really frustrating for people. And it's yeah. very easy for them to go in one way or the other. Yeah. And yeah, and we're drawn to these sort of binaries where we have to be sure one way or the other. And I think it comes back to the I earlier part so of the conversation. True. We don't need to be 100% confident here. We just need to have enough confidence to be able oh, to act. I don't and- Sorry, my Alexa just said oh, something to you. She said, sorry, I don't know that, which seems like a good response. We haven't come on to whether artificial <laughs> intelligences can be sentient yet, but yeah, maybe Alexa yeah. wants to join the conversation. I'm going to be dead by the time we have to deal with that problem, so I'm going to worry about it. <laughs> Fair enough. And just I, first, I, let's do the animals, and then we'll get to it. Exactly. One of the other things I really enjoy about our hen house as well is you're very clear that we need to pull all those levers, but every individual can pull levers that are within reach of them. It's not just about the personal consumption decision. We're all, we're voters, we're customers, we're shareholders, we're employees. We have, some people have pensions, we can write letters. There are all sorts of different ways of doing it. And to your earlier point, just sitting back and waiting for the systemic change to happen, it's crazy, right? Because all of those systems are driven by people like us in various different ways, right? So we can drive the systemic change at the same time too. It's become such a mantra, particularly in the environmental movement. Defeatist. Obviously, that you have to fight for systemic change and individual actions don't matter. But obviously, they go together. That's how change happens. People still operate individual. We all live as individuals and we operate individual to individual. And when we see an individual acting in a certain way, we can change. Of course, systemic change is immeasurably more influential than uh, individual change. There's only so much each of us can do, but each of us can spread the word. And that's how systemic change ends up happening. And you become more passionate when you're doing things. You meet other people who are doing the same thing and it it expands your thinking and energizes you. I think individual activism of whatever kind, whether it's the, you write a book, if you bring food to the office, whatever it is, it's frustrating as hell, but it's so important. And you do end up meeting really nice people. Yeah. The, the few can... people who agree with you and who will try your cupcakes at work, even though you told them they were vegan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you can see, you can see the ripples you reaching can. out. You can see things like, you know, some of the initiatives, even at UN level or supranational level across the EU, you can see it at national level governments and just the legislation or petitions or that the people are putting forward, even if they're not getting through yet. You can see it in your, your own field of the law in terms of the cases around Absolutely. personhood or you know, challenging animal agriculture. You can just see these ripples and it, it always feels too slow, but the effects are there. And you can see it in the corporate world as well. Obviously, you can see it with you know new companies popping up and taking advantage of the, the vegan dollar, but you can yeah. also see it in you read these things so we don't have to with your work on rising anxieties as you look at the animal agriculture industry itself. Oh, they're, 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 and you can see the fear they in their are. eyes in a way, right? They're, they're much more frightened of us than we think is warranted. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. really brings me pleasure, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can, see, you, you can see enormous change going on. And where did that come from? It came from individuals. So, yeah, you really, you really never know what your actions are going to result in. So how does that... Anyway, what else are you going to do with your life? Just sit here and watch it happen? (laughs) At least it makes you feel like you're doing something about this. Because our our audience is just grief-stricken. It's overwhelming. And we just put it aside every day. We put it aside and put it aside and put it aside, but it wears on you. So what else is the cure for that? Only The only thing I can think of is to try to do something about it. Yeah. Uh, Because we just see we see too much. Yeah. And one of my previous guests said, in a way, it doesn't matter whether you're pessimistic or optimistic, just, you know, keep doing what you can do, keep working and look after yourself in the meantime. Um, I I totally agree. I totally agree. Because what else are you going to do? Yeah. 
And I, it, it, it does seem there's a weird parallel in a way, because before you see this challenge that we've been talking about, there's a sort of clear cognitive dissonance that people suffer from. But it's almost like once, once we've seen it, we almost have to take on some deliberate cognitive dissonance almost to protect ourselves because we've seen it. We can see the horror. We're living in a world and a culture that thinks it's completely normal. And, and that, is, that is quite hard to cope with. And again, yeah. that's, one of the, that's one of the brilliant things you do in the community around our hen house. It's, it's, of course, it's about compassion for all sentient beings. It, it's difficult, but we, try, we have to try and have compassion even for the people who don't yet see this, because we have to understand where they've come from and the context they've grown up in. It doesn't mean we can't be firm and direct and clear, but we have to at least understand them. But we also have to have compassion for ourselves and our community and look after ourselves as well. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not nice knowing this. Yeah, or seeing it, and and being so disparaged because of it. And of course, some of my favorite co- letters that we've received from our hen house are frequently from people who live in very out of the way places. One was on Newey Island in right off of New Zealand, which is a country mm. you never heard of. <laughs> Another one was rural Saskatchewan. Imagine trying to be a vegan there, and they telling us that we're the only vegans they know like listening to the podcast. I think community is so important, whether you get it from the podcast or whether you're lucky enough to be able to find it in the real world and doing things, just trying trying to be productive and, and trying to ignore how huge the problem is. And it is, I guess I am in a lucky place to the extent that I've been doing this long enough that I have seen enormous changes. Yeah. Unfortunately, the suffering continues apace and even greater. And, but I have seen those changes and it seems likely the climate, people are starting, well, I think they're starting to be seriously frightened. And the fact that animal agriculture does key into that, I think, I do think that there's reason to believe that enormous changes are going to be taking place in the next 20 years. Unfortunately, many of them are going to be great. But if we could end animal agriculture, if we could take this scourge off the face of the earth, if there's any possibility that we could do it or cut it or save one animal's life, like that's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like things are shifting. Like you say, you've seen a lot of change. We need a lot more. There's much to fight for, but it's possible at least. Maybe that's all we need. Yeah. And yeah. The, my, like just the animal food world, all of these new foods, just seeing how people, this is just catching on. But these people have been working on it for a long time mm. and doing that kind of preparation to be ready for the shifts. I just, I just thank them every day. I hope they make billions and billions of yeah, dollars. Absolutely. And I think we'll be surprised at how quickly things can change. I mean, you look it, back it at other, is. Yeah, you look back at other social change movements and it must have felt deeply frustrating for the people trying to push those things. They always feel too slow. But you look back on it historically and things can turn in a pretty short space of time. So let's, yeah, let's make that happen people, with this one. If there are people out there doing that prep work, and there have been. So, yeah. yeah exactly. We're going to end on a mo- note of hope, aren't we, Jamie? I That's think exciting. we are. Well done. Yeah, well done. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, and I think the hope is genuine, right? There's a lot, there is real despair and it's hard psychologically, but there is proper hope there as well. And the work you're doing is absolutely central to that. So thank you so much for it. Is there anything else you want to layer into the conversation before we Oh uh, gosh, no, I, I can't think of anything. You, you asked me every question possible. Well, it was brilliant because we've, We've, we've decided what's real, what matters, and how to create a utopian future for all sentient beings. So that's not bad for an hour, really. No, we just have to get everybody in the world to listen to this and, yeah. and say, she's so right, and so is he. That's it, yeah, we'll just cut through. Yeah, 7.8 billion people, work in progress. 
<laughs> but thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. What, how, what's the best way of people following you? If they don't already listen to our Hen House and the Animal Law Podcast, what's the best way of finding that? I'll put the well, links in, website, of course. But Our website is very simple, ourhenhouse.org. And you can find me personally on, on Twitter. I virtual Social media has become a scourge of my life and I have to get better at getting back to it. But, but please follow Our Hen House. You just look for Our Hen House on any of the media. And you can find the podcast wherever podcasts are listened to. Just look for Our Hen House. Yeah, that's brilliant. Go sign up. Oh, and... How dare I leave it out? And the Animal Law Podcast, which is my other podcast, which comes out once a month. And, and in it, I interview somebody who's actually, well, usually, uh, there's a little variation, somebody who's actually litigating a, case, litigating a case right now that has to do with animal law. And I think, I always thought that only lawyers would want to listen to it, but it turns out other people seem to enjoy it as well. So I'll check that out. Yeah, thank you. And the law is another, you know, fascinating lever we can pull, right? And I started out with quite a night naive view that the law would follow public opinion and political opinion, but quite often the law can actually lead and be quite cutting edge. If you can get judges or courts to go back to some of the deep principles we're talking about, they can sometimes expose the cognitive dissonance and drive some quite radical change. So That's pretty rare, JV, in my experience, but yeah, yeah, it can happen. Occasionally the law leads. It's a pretty conservative institution. And I'm probably biased as well by being in the States where We've just, the law has taken a very conservative turn over the past, since Reagan and Maggie, what a scourge upon the earth. <laughs> <laughs> but Steve Wise's work, look at Steve Wise's yeah. work, like in the Non-Human Rights Project. He is about to argue a case before the New York Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in New York State, one of the most prestigious courts in the country, about personhood of an elephant. Yeah. And he has gotten a couple, he's never won anything. I never thought he would win anything. It always seems quixotic to me, but he's gotten amazing decisions. One from a judge on the court of appeals that dissent, but so. Yeah. I just being heard. To, like, just that's being heard crazy. Is, that's yeah. just cra- crazy. I mean, having been doing this as long as I have, that is so impressive. Yeah. And there's some interesting stuff going on in India and a variety of different. And I get that some people will look at the personhood issue, whether it's about great apes or elephants and go, look, that's, a crazy niche, look at farmed animals. But again, it's about sending those ripples out. It's about reminding people of about sentience and about non-humans can matter. And as soon as you recognize that, you start asking the question, why not the pigs and the chickens and the cows and the fish? So yes, again, well, it's just so another lever, more ripples. Yeah. It's another lever of the many. And yeah, not there isn't one single one that's going to fix this. Yeah. You're not going yeah. to find the way to do this, but just pull as many as we can. Yeah, yank them all. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. It's been an honor to talk to you and a real pleasure. And no, I, yeah, I would say the same. I love both of your podcasts too. So thank you. Thank well, I'll let you get Take to the care. rest of your day. Thanks again, Marianne. Take care. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?